This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome one and all to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, episode 136, if I'm not mistaken, here on 102.7, 3RRR on your FM dial or rrr.org.au if you are tuning in online or you are streaming us from the future. Bushy's my name in the studio this evening, Katie Dundas. Welcome back, Bushy. Oh, thank you. Back to the land of the manoeuvrers. The manoeuvrers. The walkers. The walkers. <laughs> the pickers. Of yeah, but that's things. all I'm doing now is walking. It's a bit, I'm still in that recovery zone. Are you feeling perky? I'm feeling perky. Yeah. You look perky. Yep, yeah. You look fit. I don't know how you've managed to come back looking so fit after not being moving. Yeah, it's the elephant in the room that I'm looking a bit skinny now, but it's probably, yeah, I could bore everyone senseless for two minutes on that, but I'll, I'll come back to it if anyone is really keen, they can email me and ask. Well, you can't drop that in and then just give us a taster. Just complete switching of priorities in my life. Oh. Quit alcohol. Started really focusing on feeling good like all the time instead of feeling really good for a few hours on Friday and Saturday night and <laughs> Tuesday night and some some Thursdays, most Wednesdays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's just it's, it became a bit introspective last year when I hit 40 and so I, suddenly I find myself going, hmm, better leave some kind of a legacy for my children that doesn't involve um, cirrhosis of the liver and, um, you know, pretty ruptured body. So, yeah. Well, you're looking lovely. Thank you, darling. You are too. <laughs> Um, and you are currently uh, with child. Uh, well, is that correct? Of course, it's correct. I'm <laughs> saying, is that public knowledge? It's not I'm just not? pies. There's also <laughs> there's also pies. Is baby demanding pies? Baby's demanding. Well, I'm constantly hungry, just normally in normal life. Yeah, but yeah. now I'm like, oh, I can just eat all the time. It's a good excuse, but which is glowing. not a good excuse. I didn't learn the first time around. And I should learn this time around. But the first time around, you did birth a giant. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That beautiful. Um, he's about two now, is he? Two. He's and two half? and a half. Yes. So awesome. yeah, this next one's probably going to be massive too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a planning <laughs> permit for his delivery or her's <laughs> delivery. And uh, Jed McCartney, hello. Hey, Bushy, welcome back. Yeah, thank you. How's how's things in your world? Yeah, good. Yeah, very good. I'm. Uh, uh, not like you having lost weight, but like you sticking to a fitness program, so uh, I'm pretty pleased with but that. But you were getting around on the bike still. We used, to, we used to introduce the show each week and ask you for a bit of bike news, both locally and abroad. Yeah, well, I'm, bike news is I'm getting out every morning and uh, loving it, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good and time of year to get out in the morning too. Oh, magnificent mornings. Get out, check out the balloons. 
Mm-hmm. Some almost land on us the other morning. Oh, I didn't. One stacked recently, didn't it? <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that classic uh, gravitational folly of what goes up will come down. Yeah, Melbourne's a pretty place early in the morning down by the Yarra doing some mm. laps. Yeah. It is a pretty place in the morning. But I must say it's been nine weeks since I came into town at this time. and um, Traffic. The traffic. Ooh, it's an ugly creature out there. Yeah. Katie, who are we talking to tonight? Tonight, we are delighted to have Gilbert. Gilbert, I'm going to try your second name. Roshkost? Roshkut. 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 Gilbert Roshkut, who is the founder and managing director of Village Well. He is recognised both nationally and internationally as a leading voice in placemaking. And we're going to find out a little bit about what placemaking is uh, this evening. He's a sought-after speaker and motivator, known for his innovative thinking, dynamic engagement processes and inspirational approach to community activation, which I have witnessed and which we might try and recreate later in the (laughs) studio. His catalyst ideas have regenerated iconic places and enlivened many urban and rural communities. Gilbert sees the potential of placemaking to inspire a deeper cultural and social environmental awareness and stewardship to make a difference both locally and globally. Gilbert has worked with hundreds of Main Street's developers and businesses over the last 20 years to create more vibrant, connected and resilient communities. So welcome to Green in the Apocalypse, Gilbert. Yay, great yeah. to be here. Yay. <laughs> well, wonderfully briefed because you had a little bit of a, a shocked look on your face when we told you what the show was actually called a second ago. Yes, but I'm ready for anything now. <laughs> And anything you shall get. <laughs> greening the apocalypse is the name. Wonderful. And well, greening it needs, that's for sure. <laughs> well, we've got green. I mean, that's probably a broader. I mean, you can take explore to tonight's chat pretty broadly. So, greening isn't necessarily just that uh, environmental reference, but it's like new emerging shoots of imagination and new emerging shoots of uh, social interaction and new emerging shoots of economic transaction, all sorts of stuff. So mm. broaden that Broad out. Is Don't, good. It's not just It's not just <laughs> grass and trees and ecology. So, Gilbert, I thought it might be interesting to start with a little bit about you. So tell us about your background and what led you into being so interested in people and place. Ah, now we go way back. Many centuries ago. <laughs> Probably, but um, I suppose born in a village in Mauritius, that helps. And I think a very green village at that where everything was in walking distance and intergenerational homes and food was on our doorstep, the market was on our doorstep, the the street was our community. We played on the street, we we, we shopped on the street, you know, every second house was a a business. And so that that, um, melange of life... And uh, spark of life is is in my DNA, mm. so that would be my primal, if you want to call it, influence mm. about how do we live in a village. Can you place that village? I mean, are we talking a village in the mountains, or in the outskirts of a city, or by a river, or by the sea, or where, how could you place that? Yeah, just in, sort of in reference bit, to what Melbourne, yeah, Melbourne sort of ecology. Yeah, it is. would be um, St Kilda ish. Yep. Or Caulfield-ish, a bit more inland. Yep. Um, but you know, you're never far away from the sea in Mauritius. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, see the sea from everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's a small island. But I think the spirit and intimacy of place is something. I suppose when you're taken from your country at a very early age, 
and then, you know, landing in a beautiful, another great place, Dandenong, which I lived in for 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Different diversity and cultural yep. mix. Fantastic Magic. place. Magic. Magic place. Loved it all. Um, but suddenly the streets were alive, but in a different way. You know, suddenly cars dominated and suburbia mm-hmm. and shopping centres and yeah. um, all that food came from this box called a, sh- you know... A shopping centre. Coles or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, there I think there was a little bit of, I wouldn't call it trauma, but that disconnection, even though it felt normal, mm. but I knew that was something else that, you know, and it took me a while to sort of re reawaken the the spark that the importance of to be human is to be in a place. Yeah. And yeah. to connect, find meaning in a place, but also find connection through others. Yeah. And feel safe and feel um feel the connection to nature and and and, and a built form that holds the uh the gathering mm-hmm. of people. So yeah. I that, suppose that, I missed that. That gathering of people that happens in Dandenong, Dandenong is kind of like a, a microcosm of the whole planet. Like it's just a, a bit of everyone everywhere. It's, and, um, but you've come, you talk about coming from a village in Mauritius where everybody's background and experience is a village in Mauritius and then to land in Dandenong where um, you're surrounded by new friends but from very disparate backgrounds. And so, you know, did you feel that there was a, a case of a lot of people sort of were a little bit guarded in, in getting a taste of the new, very prepared to do so, but also the, the unfamiliarity between people might have put up temporary walls until they start to find their similarities? Is that the feeling you got? Is that why it was such a big upheaval? Oh, look, I think um, that's part of the reason. Mm-hmm. I think <clears throat> being from a different country, a different yeah, language, yeah, yeah. you know, the smell of... Garlic and chili in my school bag. (laughs) That that makes a big thing in Dan. And something you must still be conscious of because you mentioned it to me when you walked in the door. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I just had a very garlicky falafel. But I think, um, look, it was was a a yin and yang in in Dandenong where we had to, we all knew we had to make a life together. And we were sort of being, you know, from backgrounds of social housing and low income, we had our spaces to connect on the streets. So there was more of that then in some way yeah. of, um, you know, we didn't have to come back at a certain time as long as you come back for dinner. And it was, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there was all this um, uh, more oxygen and, and permission and it was less complex, I mm. think, in that time in the 70s, yeah. late 60s and 70s and early 80s. So... What age were you when you ended up <clears throat> moving over to Australia? Five. Oh, you were really little. Wow. I was only a small kid, even though I've been back many times. But I mm. think those first five years were quite instrumental into my thinking about, you know, how do we Australians live, you know, coming from... Well, the youngest... Look, an Indigenous elder, when I was working in Perth, from Noongar elder, mm. said, you know, we have the oldest continuous wisdom on the planet, on this country, yeah. on this land, and the youngest multi one of the un- youngest multicultural communities, and the yeah. two haven't met yet. Yeah. And I thought, wow. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you know he got placed. They're the, they're the original placemakers. Yeah, yeah. You know, the way he was talking about the universe story and, you know, um, song lines and reading mm. the... The, the nature, yeah, you know, they, 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 as what he was talking, he said, you know, indigenous people. I think we have it too, have the concept of the second attention. So what we see now, we're talking to each other. There's one attention, but they yeah. see everything as all alive, all interconnected, and 
talking yeah. to us. And, and if you read your environments, you know, and that's why I think um, my search began, um, cutting a long story short, when I became general manager of Chadson Shopping Centre, the biggest consumption palace in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, which kind of looks like a fort when you see it from the exactly. road. It looks like a military base. <clears throat> and I had an epiphany after swimming with a bunch of wild dolphins. And I walked into the boardroom and resigned and a new chapter in life started. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's really so, freaky, isn't it? That's I, just jumped, I got... just jumped a whole 20 so years there. you were working managing Meyer or managing the whole of Chadstone? The whole man- the general manager of Chadstone. You, had so. a, you were general manager of Chadstone. You went out, swam with some dolphins and then decided your life was going to change. Yes. What did these dolphins tell you? What happened there? Well, I think I was in a moment of... You know, in that seniority where it's all about the numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I knew in my deepest soul that I was more of a people guy. I needed to be on the street with community. That's stuff that I loved. But ultimately, um, you know, the the epiphany I got was that... um, that there's something bigger than us, you know. Yeah. It's not just us. So did you get... When you came over when you were five from Mauritius... Does did storytelling play a big part in your childhood? Did you hear stories about what it was like in your village compared to what it was like in Australia? Yeah, look, my mum would tell stories all the time. You know, when there was a cyclone, <clears throat> we had the brick house. All the other houses would be flattened. <laughs> <laughs> so, call me no. out of concrete. So they yeah. come and hang out. Yeah, yeah. And um, so you had a, lived in a bunker. Exactly, we were in a yeah. bunker. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. We were we were fortunate, you know. Even though we didn't have a lot of money, others had less. Yeah. But that we'd, we'd you know we'd cook big pots and food, mm. and mm. you know it was very everyone looked after each other. You know there was that sort of gifting economy. You know there wasn't that transactional life. It was very relational. Yeah. And you know Mauritius is, you know, um, a mix of Indian, African. French, mm. Chinese, and English. That's so a real. It's a melting pot. And I'm a bit of everything of that. So yeah, yeah. Cre- being a Creole. So I think that sort of affected my view of the world, mm. being a person of colour, but also, you know, it makes you that extra little bit more compassionate and sensitive to your surrounds. Because, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in Danong, you sort of. Yeah. Back in the 70s, it was a tough. It was a tough tough place to live. You yeah, yeah. get I've some skin. I've got family that have been there for a long time since post-war. My wife's family have been out there and it's, um, right. yeah, so I've been there quite a bit and we used to go down and visit my grandma when she lived there and it, it was always one of those, because I lived in a place that was very much sort of white faces and you go down to Dandenong and it felt like you'd left the country. And we used to be fascinated by that as kids because we, we didn't see any other people from any other countries where we grew up in the Dandenongs, you know. And you, what you said earlier, Dandenong is like a synthesis of the whole of the planet. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have heard people say that almost every corner of the globe is represented in the city of Greater... C- cultures. 158 cultures in the city of Greater Dandenong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's staggering. Story. So mm. that was a good teacher, you know, I think, um, hanging out in the streets and making our own fun and, mm. you know, and... So you ended up and you have these sensibilities around place and community through... <laughs> but she's just doing Sorry. some manoeuvres here. <laughs> the sun's behind me reflecting off my computer screen straight into my face. <laughs> through growing up in Mauritius and then your mum telling you these stories about that what that was like and then living in Dandenong in a village type of community and sharing food and... 
playing out on the street with friends and it being about more than just your own family. And then somehow you ended up managing Chadstone, swam with the dolphins, had an epiphany. Then what happened? <clears throat> well, Village Well was born. And that was the point of conception. Yeah, that was... And I wrote down, I remember writing down the next day a little, you know, I don't know how it happened. It just I wrote down my intention for this lifetime possibly was to open the hearts and minds of humanity to a life-nourishing story. I didn't know what that actually meant, but I knew after Chadston that story of consumption was not life-nourishing. It's a story and and it's a dominant story. But I had to go to that place to say, okay, of course we have to eat and buy clothes and this and that, but it was much more. But do you have to do it in that manner? I guess that's the question. That's right. And that's why I think The Road Less Travelled the pathless travel began. I didn't know what it actually meant, but I just knew I had to put re almost rebirth and reset and relearn and maybe re re um reconnect to my roots, um, which had some of that essence um, and which I did went back to Mauritius and went back to you know looking at then I started my first job was at Victoria Market, mm. which is a wonderful place to and in Queen Vic. Queen Vic Market and, you know, redoing the Dally Hall and this and that ended up creating, we came up with the concept of the night market at Queen Vic and, Mm. you know, in the early days. And that was kind of, I mean, that if you're talking about the village life in Mauritius then going down to the market and having a night market, that kind of experience, probably a very familiar. Very familiar. And yet when you first put that idea to the Queen Vic night market, it was just about laughed, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, they rejected the idea wholesale, didn't they? said it well, never they, worked. They knew they needed something because of um, – it was just the beginning of how when Coles and Woolies were eat, really eating into their mm-hmm. – and shopping centres. And they had taught – you know, spoken to me when I was at Chadston, obviously. You know, I said, look, you know, can't work for you. But when I left, they, straight away they said, <clears throat> we need some help. And um, we can use some of your skills. Yeah. But I had to relearn. I mean, the traders really taught me. I think the best placemakers are traders, old school traders. Yeah, yeah. They know, they're watching the street. They've got eyes on the street. They know little Johnny. They've seen little Johnny grow. Suddenly, little Johnny becomes a granddad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They see cycles. It's it's magical, really. Markets are people places. So they said yes to it. Yeah, yeah. And they took a punt because they knew they had to think out of the box and, and the rest is history. It's 20 years old this year. Or last oh, the year. night market is. Yeah, 20 years old. 20 years since we we put that together. So you've mentioned that word placemaking a couple of times. Can you tell us what is it? What does it mean? <clears throat> it means so many things to so many people. It's like a thousand different ways to, 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 to articulate what place is. But, you know, for me it's about... Um, you know, creating deeply meaningful and connected environments that people love or feel some connection to. Um, and if you open that up, you know, it's it's about, you know, a place for all. Um, and that's a challenge for our times as well. So for mm-hmm. us... How do you make making, a place for all that is a distinctive place? To make it a distinctive place? Yeah. Because if you're making a place that appeals to all people, does it... Is there a nervousness that all places will end up becoming the same? That's that, I get that question all the time. So I think um, I always say the people that live in the place need to love the place first. Yes. They need to care for it. They need to find ownership. You know, and I think there's a definitely a, a foundation of that that's important around, you know, 
I think the most lovable places in Europe you go to where the locals hang out. Um, so we're only just discovering that in in Australia, where we've taken on the, um, I suppose, a bit of the British high street model, which was had its great framework and DNA. But in the last fifty years, we've really, in the suburbs in particular, taken that American yeah um, shopping centre car freeway narrative of modernism, and mm. and we've separated. You know, we've de- we've gone down the journey of separation. Yeah, and I think what placemaking does, it tries to go down the journey of reconnection. Is there some implications for people when they become disconnected from their place? Oh, look, I think that's a big question, and I think the the answer, the short answer, to that is absolutely. Mm. Um, there's a there's a lot of research coming out now. It's like when you're disconnected to your place, you don't feel safe in a place. Yep. You know, in terms of mental health and. Obesity, just locking yourself up and not moving, you know, mm. all those things of, um, you know, levels of depression, um, isolation. Yeah. All those statistics are coming up now and saying, well, look, when people don't feel connection, don't want to play or connect to their place, um, it's, it somehow become, it can become placeless. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And you're here on Greening the Apocalypse with tonight's guest, Gilbert Haroshkut. Is that right? Beautiful. <laughs> so we've been talking to Gilbert so far about him. His current role is a placemaker and community activist and person who tries to engage the community in their story and connect them back to place. We've heard about your time um, and in Mauritius and how that's shaped your desire for community and story um, and then growing up in Dandenongs and what a different change that was. But also it was about really creating community and creating a village um, with your through food and through story and through getting people together. Then you ended up uh, as manager of Chadstone, had an epiphany, decided that that story wasn't nourishing enough for you. So you made the very brave decision to go down a completely different path and focus on placemaking, engaging people with their place and doing a whole load of projects. Um, maybe, maybe just to give people more of an idea about what placemaking is, we can talk about a few example projects and then we'll go back into what happens when you're disconnected from place and some of the emerging disruptions that we're likely to see. So talk a bit more about placemaking and through a few examples. A few examples, yeah. Look, um, when we, our first base where Village Well was sort of birthed was a wonderful building called Ross House. When we arrived there in 1992 and um, amazing, diverse community, we were there for 15 years. So it was probably, timing was perfect because... The city of Melbourne there were looking at renewing some of their laneways and I just happened to be there at the right place at the right time to be the first sort of place activator and, and for, for a period of seven years, being at um, Ross House in Flinders Lane, I started to automatically curate it and part of it was paid and part of it wasn't. And and in that seven years, we saw the transformation through hundreds of small acts and some of them illegal acts where we put on illegal dance parties and... And, um, you know, we closed the laneway for a festival. We'd um, work with stencil artists and curate them and 
Um, we'd meet at the middle of the night. There was squatters. and But it was a seed that was um, created about intimacy of place, about connection to the city mm-hmm. and the city as a village. And we started to feel that together. It was cheap rent then and, yeah. and all those things. There was lots of oxygen to experiment. So it was one of my best times of my life. And that Flinders de Graves precinct, you know, through the work the City of Melbourne and Rob Adams did. And we were more the software side, the place animators, the curators. We created a little plan, a community plan mm. by all the artists and yep. all the artists from the Nicholas Building and Ross House participated. We didn't know what we were doing. We just knew it was like we were the ones that were going to create our own place. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't tourists there and it was, was dead and half the shops were empty, but it was our place. Just, well, just quickly that's, on... And that's important. Yeah, just quickly on that because I was talking to Katie a bit and, and some of the articles we've read about you because we've got your backstory, which I think is a really vital part of this. But what Melbourne, you know, the most livable city, it constantly gets called now, but once upon a time it had a really... Like people were quite acrid in their assessment of Melbourne's CBD, like just a shithole and nothing to do and it was a donut city. So it strikes me that when, you, when you're landing at, at that time and, and setting up what you call the software, like the atmosphere in amongst the hardware and the infrastructure and stuff, or somewhat of a blank slate, but albeit a, a fairly complex slate. What? Because I can't imagine it. You know, I, I know Melbourne as an exciting place. There's there's action on every corner. But can you just paint a bit of a historical perspective for us on Melbourne back before it became that that exciting place that you helped? To, to launch. Yeah, and me and many others. Oh, yeah, you and many so, others, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, look, you could throw... Soon, soon it was 5pm, it was a dead city, you know, it was yeah. a donut city and, you know, there was no such thing as work, living in the city and there was no such thing as di- out, outdoor dining and maybe I think there was one outdoor dining place. I think yeah. It was the Greek fish and chip shop on Swanson Street yeah, and a few right. chairs. Yeah. And um, so... Literally, um, there was no concept of the city as a place. Mm. The city was to work and get out of there and it died on weekends and mm. it struggled. So I think, you know, people, uh, there's, the concept of memory is important. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of work around that reanimation and, and you know, it was like a thousand chapters of failures in a way, but we didn't see it as failures. We said, oh, that didn't work. Let's yeah, try yeah. something else. But we had fun. I think that was a key thing. We were all having fun and a lot of it was donated time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, as I said, some of the best years of my life. And what we did see is, the, you know, through the city of Melbourne's, you know, Postcode 3000 and, and um, the whole thing of um, the greening, the, you know, reclaiming the laneways for people yep. and, and shared spaces and all those hundreds of other little things started to curate the, the right intimacy of the, the urban fabric mm. for things to happen and that gave us uh, permission and then the odd enlightened developer would come and, yeah. and build, you know, retrofit one of the beautiful heritage buildings into apartments and then the domino just started to fall very quickly mm. because it was already happening in parts of New York and, and London and it wasn't – there was – already a, a, an example of beforehand, but we did it the Melbourne way. Mm. So is the current like building craze, and, and I looked out the window of my office, I'm in bottom end of Carlton near Vic Markets, and I counted 12 cranes just in one little window scape. Mm. So is that building craze, do you think that's going to keep building place or... Is that part of the separation you were talking about before? Yeah, it's yeah, a, good, a great question. It's a good question. And look, um, it's a t- at the end of the day, um, 
the more enlightened developers could build if they build their their if they have if they've got a gifting nature. What I mean by that is, with their architects and designers, and they create a beautiful ground plane, with a, like in, you see in France, pocket parks, beautiful curated cafes, and mm. something that gives back part of their ground plane to the community. They're the smart ones. What we have seen, unfortunately, in Melbourne, is a lot of um, glass architecture. <laughs> um, literally destroying our ground planes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Choking the shit out of the place. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, just closing off the street, which creates you know the perception it's not safe, and mm. um, and you know, and all life happens above, not on the ground. It's very, you know, what happens in parts of the Middle East. Um, so I think what's important here is that we need to re- have a reset button with these towers, and they need to come in like in Vancouver, and say, well, what are you going to give back to the city? You know, mm. what are, what's the, 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 the precinct and the life on the street? And mm. all there, are, those there are some controls in the city where you do get um, developers having to give things back to the community, but it could certainly be improved. I think so. <laughs> I think it needs a bit more curation Yeah, because they get the sign-off, but when the delivery happens, you know, the, 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 the architects have just missed the mark and, you know... Ultimately, there are great examples too. And I guess you also need the ability as a community member and what it sounds like you had in Flinders Lane is the the group of people that care enough to try and they, um, they be allowed to try to create the space and experiment with things that go wrong and try to try to build a sense of place. That's right. And look, we just did it because... No one told us to stop. Yeah. That was the thing. But yeah. now we have this sort of, pol- it's not a police state, but you just, you know, they're scared to try anything. Are we scared to try anything or do people think that someone else is going to do it for them? I think both. Yeah. I think there's a bit of both there. Um, so ultimately, you know, the citizens of Bologna mm. and, and Barcelona and mm. what we're seeing in Ghent, the, you know, how the, the, the whole return to the commons, they're basically devolving power back to the community yeah. through participatory design, participatory budgets, you know, real deep democracy where citizens saying, well, enough, mm. we're going to, we're going to, this we're is ours, we're going to do it. Yeah. And instead of giving it to large scale developers for urban regeneration, <laughs> you know, we're giving yeah. it back to community groups, clusters of, you know, localists. Um, groups with economic engine room that they could start to... Because, mm. you know, there's two principles in placemaking. The wisdom lies in the community and it takes many hands to create a place. And have you worked on projects, that larger projects, that have involved a more participatory democracy type of output? And how, how's that changed something from what could have been developer-driven to something that became community-driven? Yeah, look, even when I, we did the... I mean, this was where we went back to the commercial world back in 1999, 2000. We did the master plan for Melbourne Central. And I said, look, which is a shopping centre. Yeah, yeah. And they had a box. And we said, well, look, because they knew what we were doing with the laneways, I said, well, look, you can cut laneways into this. You could take the air conditioning out and leave the laneway that flow through. You could open up Lonsdale to Little Lonsdale. You could... But you need to bring in the students, bring in the Indigenous community, engage, they were sort of shocked, but they understood that this was part and parcel of the process of understanding our communities, our student life. And 
And to their credit, they activated the transport hub and, and, and brought, you know, reactivated a shopping centre back into a city grid mm. as before it was a box. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Well, we are speaking to Gilbert Roscout uh, from Village Well, and we've been talking about the importance of storytelling and the importance of placemaking, which is connecting people into their place through your richness of detail and relevance to the place. Um, and there was a few examples that we talked about, like Melbourne laneways, you were involved right at the beginning of um, the software part. So activating and adding the human element and interest to what we now know and love and has become an icon of Melbourne, the Melbourne laneways. Um, so there's heaps of stuff about to change for the city and for everybody, the world. Mm. There's lots of things happening. I mean, Melbourne's going to double in population over the next 30 years, 50 years, we've got major technology changes happening. We're seeing the impacts of climate change. Um, and people potentially feel disempowered about how they're able to impact their community and how they're able to really take control back of the places that they belong to. Um, but what we've heard from you is that it's really important that they do because if you lose that connection to place, there's lots of negative consequences. Um, you talked about obesity, for example, because people don't get out and about. Loneliness is something that's becoming more and more of an issue. Bishy, you sent me an interesting article on that recently, mm. um, which we'll put on the the links so yep. you can find it. Um, and just a sense of disconnection. So I'd be interested in your thoughts Bearing in mind all of this stuff that we're about to see change, how how do we give people back the ability and power and fun of connecting back to their place? Like, mm. what can you do? Yeah, well, look, great question. I think I'm a big fan of starting small, and small is beautiful, and starting in your own place and <clears throat> in your own um, street, in your own front door, in your own neighbourhood. Um, you know, I remember when I lived in North Coburg, we did an illegal um, verge and uh, the council really got stuck into us at the time and um, and uh, and we put a seat out on our verge and, and, and um, <gasps> I know, and we lost, I think... Damn you. I think um, <laughs> we, we, we lost about five of those seats. They disappeared in the middle of the night. We planted olive trees. <laughs> Plant, there you go, olive trees. We had a little... Jesus. We had fruit trees and we did everything that you're not supposed to do but it became a little village mm. on our on our footpath and then now and we got to meet people and we sh- they left food for us and i think small is important and it was a couple mm. of little spaces in the street where we said council we want to plant this and they said we've got no money but we'll do it ourselves and mm-hmm. you can just start so don't don't be afraid yeah and that's i think that's the key it's very easy to sit back and go someone should really do that over there so go and do it Correct. Yeah, just do it. We, we, you know, we live up in the country. I was just saying off air, we live, you know, out on way past the edges of Melbourne and uh, we've we got the verge, you know, they call it the nature strip in front of our place. And I remember the first summer I still got the letter so that the council had been around and I hadn't, like, cut the grass and stood in the fire season coming, so you've got to cut your... So, well, bollocks, if they're not mowing it and I've got to deal with it, I'm going to make it something I want to deal with. So cut garden beds in and there's fruit trees in and I've got the whole thing actually making it look like my backyard, you know, and so many people initially would say, oh, you're allowed to do that? 
Well, just do it. You know, it's not, oh, yeah, I'm not, no one's dying from me putting some fruit trees on the nature strip. And if you're out there and you're thinking, oh, should I do this? That's, I reckon that's the key question. Will I do more good than harm to this? And if someone comes along and tell me I can't do it, you have to ask them, are you willing to do more good than what I've done here? Exactly. And I yeah. think you've hit the nail on the head again. We're working with the city of Whitehorse, creating the first sort of culture shift within a council to make it a yes culture. Mm. So when someone picks up the phone, yeah, yeah, of course, it's, it's, not, it's not a no, no, or I'll send you, I'll get someone from engineering to ring you or planning. Mm. They go, yes, it's, it's a yes and culture. Yes. So they want all their citizens to be placemakers, you know, which is a radical idea. So it's a wonderful idea. It's a wonderful, so, you know, creating a culture within mm. organisations that says, this is your community, this is your place. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've got support for this. We can help you create that. Yeah. It doesn't just, you know, cut down the idea. The future, I think, tipping point trend will be about communities taking back control. It's happening mm. globally. We've got to one extreme of the story now. And the next chapter that's unfolding when we see these extremes is people mm. take back what I call the commons. Yeah. And and to start to celebrate the commons, our streets, our laneways, our parks, our yeah. And then whatever we do with that, but it starts from the place. And the power of storytelling comes back into play then because we talked at the beginning about how the stories that you learnt about your childhood um, and the stories that you told each other in Dandenong were really important to building a sense of community and building a sense of wanting to connect with each other. So it's going to be really important that the stories that we tell ourselves for the future create the narrative that we want for the future. That's how, do we, right. how do we make that happen? That's we don't right. want to be heading down the wrong path. Yeah, mm. and I think it's going to take hundreds of good people with good intentions to become good facilitators, just a whole space. It's not about ego, but just mm-hmm. allowing people to come together, break bread together, put yeah. some music on, yeah, yeah. and go around the room. And, and it's what we did for thousands of years. Mm. I do it for a living when I go into a community and we, we spend an hour just writing stories and we share it with each other. Yeah. And then they, small groups synthesise that and, you know, the magic happens and, and then suddenly the essence appears in the room. Yeah, yeah, right And on. then people say, yeah, that's who we are. That's what we want to be. And, yeah, these are the ten things we want to do. I mean, it's simple things. Mm. The wisdom lies in the community. Absolutely. And, and, it, so, and it also, well, Kate was talking about that epidemic of loneliness and it's a, it is a genuine issue in, in cities today where, you know, you can live in a building with 2,000 other people and not know anyone. Um, but if you can go down that path, like you're saying, of having a more inclusive public space and a, and a public body overseeing it, so they're saying, yeah, we can do this and we can do that and here's how, then suddenly those people, so they, they might notice that the, the hallways of their building are empty and there's people down on the street and maybe you can do crazy maverick shit like have a fire pit, you know, outside a block of flats and that sort of stuff and maybe that fire pit as it's done for thousands of years brings people in to have a chat and meet one another as well, you know. It's simple little things. Simple. And my mother, she's 92. Yep. You know, she, in an apartment, she ripped out all the exotic plants illegally from the body corporate <laughs> and put in a hundred of her chili plants. Beautiful. And everything, and now the whole community's out. Yeah. Getting their herbs and chili plants, <laughs> and she'll cook for them sometimes. And, and she's like, you know, watching everyone in the. Now she's with an apartment with a hundred millennials. Yeah. But she's the placemaker. She's watching everyone and come on in. and The elder. You know, the, the elder. Yeah. You know, yeah. Our elders. Beautiful. Need, you know, so, you know, that's the spirit 
where I got my spirit from. But, you know, that's, you know, I remember her just taking me to Danong Market and speaking to the traders as a little six year old and for years. So that was my little mentoring. So mm. the, 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 that tipping point of we can do it, it's a can-do mm. space. I think watch, watch this space. I think in Australia we're starting to see this move very quickly yeah. and councils will be a great facilitator and enabler of that process. Mm. Absolutely. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.